flocked to hear what philosophers thought, one subject in particular was extremely common, death. A few centuries before Christ, a philosopher called Epicurus taught that death was nothing to be afraid of and that fearing death was actually the most irrational fear of all. He taught that there's nothing after life, so your goal in life is to have as much pleasure as possible without letting the fear of death distract you. Don't let it become an impediment to your pleasure. And we see followers of this Epicurus philosopher in Acts chapter 17. Paul's preaching there about Jesus' resurrection. And they're the people that mock this crazy idea about life after death. And they say it's a load of nonsense. So there were followers of Epicurus a few centuries after him. And apparently Epicurus still has his followers today, whether they realize it or not. But people do fear death. And death comes to all without fail. Even Ebenezer Scrooge feared death when he was confronted with his own gravestone. You remember that long bony finger of the ghost of Christmas future. It's not as if Scrooge expected to live forever. But being suddenly, unexpectedly confronted with his own mortality terrified him. Fairly recently, there was a Sky News headline that asked the question, the end of aging, subheading, is it possible to live forever? Obviously not in the way they expected it, but that doesn't stop people from trying. The wealthiest and the most, uh, the most powerful people in our world are still powerless against the power of death. The same was true of this nobleman, this official, this man who came to Jesus in desperation. He's incredibly fearful for the life of his dying son. Now, he goes to the right person with the right kind of desperation. Because whilst we are all powerless against death, our Lord is not. Equal to God in power, authority, and majesty, Jesus is the only one who we must turn to in times of greatest need. He alone has the authority to give life and to take it away, and we saw that this morning. But the life that Christ gives us is far more than our short time here on earth. He doesn't need you to have great faith for him to work his power in you, but he does need you to have faith. He needs you to have faith to be saved. He doesn't need you to have great knowledge, but he needs you to have knowledge that only Christ can save you. You need to have urgency. You need to recognize your desperation, like this man in Galilee. He comes to Jesus with nothing but an acknowledgement that he is completely unable to help himself or save his son. He came hoping that Jesus could save in verse 47. He left knowing that Jesus is able because he is the Lord over life and death, sickness and sin by verse 53. We're told this is the second sign explicitly mentioned in John's gospel there at the end of the passage. And these signs in John's gospel punctuate this gospel. The first one, this one rather, points back to the first one. It also occurred in Cana in Galilee, and the result of it was faith as well. 
In John chapter 2, verse 11, we hear what Jesus' purpose was in performing signs. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The first sign saved a wedding. This next sign saves a boy from a funeral. For his children, Jesus puts the joy in weddings and gives hope at funerals. Jesus' signs brought him glory. They demonstrated his authority and they inspired belief in him. I was on a website called theinvisiblegorilla.com and in it you can see different studies that sociologists and psychologists have done and they're looking at what's called change blindness. People are asked in this video to count how many people wearing white passed a ball to each other. And they're focusing so much on the activity and this ball being passed that they don't notice the man in the gorilla costume passing through the room, even though he's beating his chest right in the middle of these people. And it's a fascinating experiment. Jesus is traveling through his homeland and he's witnessed a cold, heartless religion among so many. Now they have their long-awaited Messiah in their midst but the eyes of their hearts are completely blind to notice who he is, even though he's right in front of them. This was common in Israel. The Galileans followed Jesus to see signs and wonders, but they missed the point of those signs. They loved a good spectacle, but they didn't respond in repentance or have faith in his message. And Jesus knew. You see, Jesus sees through a cold exterior of religious works, and he sees right into our hearts. And so the introduction to this miracle doesn't inspire much hope. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And the first thing we want to notice is dead faith and a desperate father who appears on the scene in verse 46. Cheers go up as the home fans give their boys a standing ovation as the team returns from a big away win. Now they're back in their home stadium and they're in front of their fans, but within 30 minutes, they're losing by three goals. They're losing badly. And all the excitement and elation of last week's win is quickly forgotten. And that warm welcome they received is replaced by booing and fans walking out early. The team were never really welcome. Their previous performance was. And the fans just want to see them do it all over again. We might call them fickle fans. Well, we began by reading that Jesus had no honor in his own country. But then the next sentence says the Galileans welcomed him. And so at first, verse 45 seems to contradict verse 44. But John is probably using irony, as he does often in his gospel. He talks about Jewish soil here. This is where Jesus doesn't receive a true reception. Only what seemed to be a welcome, like the welcome a celebrity might get when they return to their hometown. And then they say something that people don't like and they're quickly canceled. But if you look back at the Samaritans in the previous section, they believed in Jesus because of his word. John intends this contrast to be an ironic 
rebuke to the Jews in Cana who care only about physical miracles. But the Samaritans, those evil Samaritans, the Jews would think, they receive salvation by faith. The faith of those in Israel was largely shallow, and Jesus knew it. But then look at this nobleman. It's likely that this man served under a king, but by verse 53, he knows who the true king is, the king of all kings. It's quite possible he was a Gentile. <clears throat> if that's the case, this is marking that, that movement from reaching the Jews, chapter 3, to the Samaritans, chapter 4, and now to a Gentile. That's a pattern that we'll see in Acts. And in verses 46 to 47, we notice that he's desperate. He comes to Jesus with desperation. And to come to Jesus in faith, there needs to be a recognition of your desperate condition. Back in 2021, MLA Peter Weir appealed to people to be observant when it comes to our physical health. He, admitted, he was admitted to the Ulster Hospital for diabetes and then on to the RVH. He had an infection in his toe, maybe you remember that, but it spread and it had to be amputated. But he said he was close to having his entire leg amputated. And I find what he said interesting upon reflection. Politicians are often accused of being two-faced or hypocritical. This is an occasion on which I hold my hands up and admit, I'm saying do as I say, not as I did. Again, in his words, if people have a concern over the development of symptoms of any level, they should not simply dismiss them. Take early action. Don't ignore, don't dismiss your symptoms. Take early action. And if that's true of our physical health, then how much truer is it of our spiritual needs? What am I getting at? In a word, urgency. If you're hostile to God, the symptoms of your condition are obvious. You live for yourself. You have no regard for the things of God. You don't think about eternity. And if you do, you might think you're good enough to get to heaven. But that's not what God's word tells us, is it? Without Jesus Christ, we are hopeless. Diagnosis must precede treatment. The gospel is unique in both respects. It alone diagnoses accurately, and it alone has the remedy. Well put, Lloyd-Jones. The diagnosis is we are all dead in sin, and the remedy is salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. That will be this man's testimony soon too. But see firstly how urgently he comes to Jesus. He came from Capernaum 20 miles away. He traveled this far, not knowing if his son would be alive when he got back, to appeal to a man he's likely never met before, but he'd heard that this was a man with power and compassion. So I think there are seeds of faith even here. At very least, he's taking a huge risk. He's not spending the last moments of his son's life by his side, but he's sacrificing that precious time to be with Jesus, to seek help from Jesus. If your child was sick or someone you love, wouldn't you travel 20 miles even on your knees if you knew there was someone with power to help them? 
pastor and author Kent Hughes empathizes with this nobleman. He says, nothing can shatter us more than affliction falling upon our children. And then Hughes tells of a time when he heard a doctor diagnose his child with spinal meningitis. And then he watched the doctor withdrawing a huge hypodermic needle from his child's spine. And he writes, your life turns gray and you wander from lab to clinic to doctor feeling like a useless character in a story no one wants to hear, thinking again and again, this can't be happening. This nobleman, this official was needy. He didn't send any servants, he probably had some, but he goes himself because this is a father's passion, this is a father's duty, this is a father's heart breaking for his child. And we see his urgency again in verse 47, which can be translated, he was imploring Jesus. And the tense tells us he's asking Jesus persistently for help. And so we see this respected official of Herod's court humbling himself to beg a lowly carpenter's son. It's impossible to be sure if this man had any true faith in Christ at this moment in his desperate pleading. You see, he's not pleading for forgiveness for sins. He doesn't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. He's there because his son is dying and he's heard Jesus can heal. He wants Jesus to do something for him. He gets things the wrong way round, but we can learn from him even as we sympathize with his plight. The first thing we should do when someone we love is suffering is run to Jesus, but to do so with faith. We don't demand that he do what we tell him, but we ask him, we plead with him to show his unmerited grace and goodness again, according to his father's perfect will. And as we'll see, Jesus' compassion and patience extends to this man, even though maybe he doesn't approach Jesus the way he should. His impatience is understandable, isn't it? His urgency is refreshing. And we need to be urgent too. We need to be urgent certainly if we're not saved, but if we are saved, we need to be urgent in our pleading with Jesus to save those we love. And we need to be urgent in how we spread the gospel. Our urgency in evangelism is born from an understanding that the Lord is coming back. We need to be calling on all people to repent and believe in the only one who can save them from their sins. This man was urgent. This man was desperate. But secondly, he was demanding. And, and so we see there's a demanding father, and then we're going to see divine forbearance. Look with me at verse 48. We're taken aback, aren't we, by Jesus' response to this poor man's pleading for help. But Jesus didn't rebuke just this man. Because unless you, that you is plural, so the NIV is right, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus is lamenting the lack of faith among people who put their faith in the signs rather than the words of the Lord. And there are many texts in John that demonstrate this kind of fake faith. John 2.23, many believed in his name when they saw his signs. John 6.26, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled, etc. 
But genuine faith isn't a search for signs and wonders. It's a search for Jesus Christ. In the end, we know Jesus did heal the boy, but he didn't give a sign, only his word. Because the word of the Lord is sufficient for faith. I think people who follow false religions must think of us as a pretty boring people. We don't have the visual appeal, do we? Our faith isn't based on ornate sculptures of idols. We don't have any paintings depicting what our God looks like. We don't pray with beads or other physical accessories. We can meet to worship God anywhere. Our faith is based entirely on the all-sufficient, unchanging, inerrant holy word of God. But that word is by no means boring. It reveals to us our beautiful Lord Jesus. And in it, we have the only way to know God in a personal, intimate level. We take Jesus at his word and we respond in faith and repentance. And as we do that, we receive unbounded grace through him. Too many today seek signs and wonders before they will accept the word of the Lord. Signs are not what Jesus wants us to believe in. They're not what Jesus wants us to seek out before we believe. And so I think verse 48 reads almost as if Jesus is sighing. He'd later tell doubting Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. If God's truth is not enough for you, then it wouldn't be enough for you even if Jesus appeared to you in person. How can I be so sure? Because history proves it. The history of the New Testament proves it. Though he had done so many signs before then, they still didn't believe in him. People don't have faith who only believe with their eyes. Now, Jesus didn't rebuke this man for asking him for help. He rebukes those who gather around him who'd seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the feast. Verse 45. Well, did Jesus speak at that feast? Highly likely. But they came because of what they saw, not because of what they heard. And that's always been the way the world tests truth. It's the litmus test of worldly faith. And so in our age, people limit what is real to what can be observed in the universe. We call that materialism. Everything's reduced down to what you can see and feel and touch. This nobleman was different, I believe. He's desperate and he really loves his dying son. So he's not put off by Jesus' seemingly harsh sounding words. And he repeats, sir, come down before my child dies. He actually commanded Jesus to do something. That's urgency for sure. And Jesus condescended patiently to meet his request without taking a single step in the direction of this man's home. Because Jesus wants to show everyone that he is the Lord. And he doesn't need to be physically present somewhere to make a difference there. Again, I don't think this man displays a fullness of faith. He makes two miscalculations. He thinks Jesus needs to be present to exercise his power over sickness. And he thinks that if Jesus didn't arrive in time and his son died then it would definitely be too late. 
But Jesus' power is absolute. It's all-encompassing. It's unrestricted, and it extends beyond life and death. So notice what Jesus says. Go, your son will live. That's a command. Jesus wants this man to believe his words, and so he adds a promise to that command. All of Jesus' commands are based on his promises. They still are for us. He doesn't instruct us to do something without promising to enable us to do it. And the nobleman believed the promise and obeyed the command. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Because faith listens to Jesus and faith obeys Jesus. This man's faith is expressed outwardly by his immediate going. He believes and so he goes. Faith and response must go hand in hand. If you say you believe in Jesus, then you need to put your life in his hands daily and trust that his will for you is best even when you don't understand it, even when you don't like it. We trust him. And the last thing we notice in this passage is a dramatic finale and devoted faith. And who doesn't love a happy ending? Not the soppy, cliched finales that we tire of seeing in films where the boy gets the girl, they get married, and they live happily ever after in blissful suburbia. Not that kind of happy ending. In the conclusion to the second sign of Jesus' miracles, we see the happiest possible ending, certainly beyond even this man's imagination. Because not only does complete healing come to the nobleman's son, but the nobleman is completely healed too. He's spiritually transformed. And not only that, but his entire household, perhaps including wife, children, servants. In verse 52, he asks, when did the boy begin to get better? And then he discovers that the power of Jesus is greater than he could ever have imagined because his slaves say yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. This is instantaneous and complete restoration and it happened exactly when the Lord of life uttered his word. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says the Lord sustains all things by what? By his word. Genesis 1 3 says and God said let there be light <clears throat> and there was light. That was it. No formula, no strategy, no consultation with experts, no delay, just God speaking into existence that which he commands to be. The psalmist put it succinctly. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. John wants you and I to know this is the same word of God speaking in power. And that's why he opens his gospel with, without him was not anything made that was made. And now this nobleman knows who Jesus was without any doubt. And it's interesting, I said that on Wednesday night, Andy spoke on the previous passage. And this encounter with Jesus comes right before the Samaritan woman encounter where a similar transformation takes place and a similar result. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Verse 42, 
They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. That woman's entire world was transformed when she met the savior of the world. She was waiting for Messiah to come with an expectant faith in God to send him. Then he comes and he shows his authority. And she did exactly what God expects us to do when he transformed us. Go and tell everyone you know. And it's the same with this nobleman. In verse 53, he believed in Christ. And he's told his household what Christ has done for him. And they have believed such grace of God to grant household salvation. To show that it's too small a thing for him to bring this boy back to life when he has power and authority to give eternal life to the spiritually dead. And I think that's the supreme miracle that we're supposed to marvel at in this passage. Yes, Jesus has power over physical life and death, but hallelujah, he has power over spiritual death too. And if you haven't come to Jesus... Have the urgency of this nobleman who came humbly, desperately, but dependently on Jesus Christ. Believe the word that Jesus has spoken to us in the gospel. There's no one else like him. He's the only one with power to give life and to take it away and to replace your cold heart of stone with a heart of flesh that pumps for God. That is to say that Jesus can raise the dead. That's what we all were in our sin, dead and completely incapable of changing ourselves. But we trust in the Lord of life, the one who was sent into the world by his father, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He gave his life for you and I and all who come to faith in him because he loved us. That was the reason, love but he took his life back up again three days later when he rose from death to endless life. And so, yes, our condition without Christ should cause us to despair. But when we come urgently to him and we cry out for mercy, he will forgive us. And then with gratitude, we devote ourselves to humble service of him. As we conclude... Know that Jesus does not need to be physically present to demonstrate his compassion and his power in your life because he is permanently present with his disciples by his spirit and he will be present physically soon. The power of Christ's word is not limited by anything, certainly not by physical location. His word speaks today and his spirit interprets and applies that word to our hearts to magnify the Lord to us. If you've heard the word of the Lord, if you've studied it, have you told others the impact that it's had on you? Do those in your household or your workplace or your school or your neighborhood or whoever you live with or around, do they know that God's word is so powerful that it led you to repentance and belief, that it spoke to you like Fraser told us this morning that it spoke to him? and that it still speaks, and that it still changes. Do you know someone who's not yet had a life-transforming, 
life-giving encounter with the Lord Jesus. Someone who's in great need, physical, emotional, mental needs, trauma, addiction, relational breakdown with a spouse. Could you point them to this passage and show them the powerful word of God that can make the difference in any life if they will believe? Now, you can't tell them physical, earthly hardships will vanish, but you can promise them that if they know Christ, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4. And you could take them back to the signs of Jesus that were recorded for this exact purpose. And I said it at the start. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Maybe your heart breaks at the physical suffering of a loved one. How much more should our hearts break for loved ones who are lost spiritually? But that heartbreak, that sadness, has no use if it doesn't drive us to our knees in prayer, imploring our gracious and compassionate Savior to pour out his mercy on the lost. And so we can all come to him today, our compassionate master and Savior. We can trust his word is enough. And then when we've come to him, we go in faith like this man, we leave our request with him, and we trust his perfect will. Amen. We're going to...